Welcome to one of those times in a life, sharing songs and stories around the virtual campfire. At this campfire, Dear Partner, Part 2. An old soulmate, dear partner, how do we get this far? No cars and beer bars, no one to blame. The dream was to stay young until we keeled over. We've been young together, we've grown old just the same. In July, when I got back from Spokane, people continued to reach out and want to talk about Pat Sands. We needed to tell our stories and secure our memories. And some of them had felt alienated and disconnected from Sands after he became a Christian. And now that he was gone, there was a need to somehow reconnect with the man they knew and loved. Sands had a gift of seeing life as a banquet and inviting everyone to share the feast. And we were all wondering, a little scared, whether life without him would ever be as sweet and if we would ever savor it as much. The idea of keeping him alive in songs and stories, that was easy for me. What I couldn't anticipate was how much of me that he held in his memory was now gone. I ended up buying a tape recorder to try to capture people's stories and memories. 30 years ago, it wasn't common to document our lives that way. And between the hemming and hawing and stumbling and mumbling, I quickly gained a new respect for Studs Terkel and his Pulitzer Prize-winning oral histories. McCoy and his wife hadn't seen Sands a lot that last year or two, and And still, the adventures the three of them had, they were legendary. And when I started working on new songs, I loosely based and expanded their exploits into something that could be called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the musical. The problem was the songs weren't very good. (laughs) And I was having more trouble than usual staying focused. In the middle of August, I got together with some extended family in Oregon. One evening, one of my uncles and I were sitting outside under a covered porch on a couple of rocking chairs. He was a recently retired physician who went to medical school with my dad, and I was actually named after him. We were relaxing and talking when he casually said that of my two brothers and me, he was surprised it was my youngest brother who ended up in the psychiatric ward. And before I could catch my breath, he, he said he was also surprised that my dad went on to such a full life after getting out of the mental institution. Now, my uncle was a good, kind man who I believe was talking and trying to understand and share his opinions. And when I asked him about that conversation later, he didn't actually remember much about it. The difficulty was that I recognized a ring of truth in what he was saying. And it was the first time I'd heard that kind of thing said aloud. And while it was disturbing, it felt akin to fire. Useful, 
and yet somehow, sometimes destructive. And about that same time, I got some amazing news from the publishing company in Nashville. I sent them a dozen songs after the concert in June, and they offered me contracts on most of them. And now they were telling me that Johnny Cash wanted to record Dear Partner. And not only that, but he was considering using the song to bring June Carter Cash on stage when they did concerts together. After knocking on the songwriting door for 15 years, it appeared this would be the break, the breakthrough. And what might normally be considered the biggest news of the summer became one more reason to hold my breath. By the end of September, I was becoming more and more unmoored. I didn't know how to stop and where to stand. I called someone I thought might understand. My cousin, Joanne, immediately invited me to come and spend a few days. It seems to take more work the harder we play Tomorrow gets closer and some old yesterday For the people we loved And the places we've been I wish we'd known better But I'm so glad we did Fifteen weeks before visiting my cousin Joanne, I had put all my energy into a concert that included introducing a number of new songs. A week later, Pat Sands died, and three days later, we buried him. Ten days after that, my brother was in the hospital, and things I'd grown up believing about life and family were cast in doubt. And then a woman I'd kept close and yet somehow at arm's length found someone else, and the most important thing in the world became winning her back. And in the midst of all that, it sounded like Johnny Cash was saying yes, and my uncle was saying that instead of my younger brother, it should have been me, and on some level, I believed he might have been right. It was as if I had lost a sense of both my inner and outer compass, and in the midst of all that, I needed to find out who and where I was. Fortunately, Joanne was at a place and time in her life where she was secure in who she was and what she was doing. She'd been giving wise counsel since she was a kid, and now she was a trained child psychiatrist working at the University of Minnesota offering guidance and bearing witness to kids and families facing life-threatening diseases. Her apartment in Highland Park with views of the Mississippi River more than any place that she lived before or since gave her a sense of being home. Because she was comfortable and confident in her life, she stayed easily in one place as I kept bouncing around. It was also important that she was both family and friend. Though only five years older, she had a sense of family history and wasn't afraid to dig up skeletons or scare up ghosts. Because her dad had been the one who was there for two brothers who ended up in mental institutions, well, my dad was one of those brothers. Her perspective was more objective, less personal than mine. Most important, her only agenda during that visit was to be there for me. 
At dinner that first night, Joanne asked how I felt being born the tainted one. After giving her a combination of a blank stare and incredulous look, she explained that I was conceived in a time of great promise. My dad was in one of the last waves of military personnel to come back from the Pacific after World War II, nearly a year after the shooting had stopped. And when he got back to the University of Minnesota to continue his medical training, he stood out, even though he was among the youngest of a group of now grizzled veterans. His depression, those deep blues, came out of the blue. When my dad was 12, he learned his oldest brother, Peter, died of pneumonia. What he wasn't told was that Peter contracted the disease and died in a mental institution. A dozen years later, my dad went from being a superstar at the university hospital to being locked behind the doors of their psychiatric ward. Not responding to treatment, he was transferred first to the VA and then to the state mental hospital in St. Cloud. All these years later, I can only begin to imagine the confusion and fear and shame he felt. My dad grew up poor. His father was a janitor. His mother was ashamed to tell the neighbors what her husband did for a living. And if that's the case, how does someone, anyone, talk, even among themselves, about how their oldest and youngest sons ended up in mental institutions? The irony is how proud I am of my family. And what a shame it is that it was something to be ashamed of. When my dad was overseas, my mom and older brother lived with her parents in a small town in northwest Minnesota. With the future uncertain and now pregnant with me, she moved back with her parents. My dad was in the hospital when I was born on the first day of spring. He attended the christening. Shortly after that, he was released. The family was united and spent an uncertain summer near a lake in northern Minnesota. My dad started practicing medicine with Joanne's dad in the town of Shakopee, south of Minneapolis. Five years later, my dad completed his specialty training in the family, now including my younger brother, moved to Spokane, living as if that dark time never happened and must now be forgotten. And when it was finally talked about when I was 22, it was discussed like something disconnected from any real life. Now, at the end of September 1983, at 36 years old, the story finally includes serious mental illnesses, hospitalizations, shame and stigma, people making serious and important life decisions as best they can, one young man dying and another very sick young man getting well and going on to a full life. Suddenly, everyone in that bigger story becomes more human. And yes, more heroic. And at that moment, I'm asked how it feels to be born the tainted one. What I understand now that I didn't understand when Joanne asked that question is on some level, as a newborn, I made myself responsible for the anxiety and the uncertainty of that time and ended up anxious and uncertain. 
at the time making mental illness part of the family history would have meant acknowledging something wrong with the family. And because nothing was said in that way, in my twisted logic, I ended up thinking there was something wrong with me. Of course, we're talking now in generalizations and simplifications. What I was only beginning to understand that night is how important it can be to understand and find our place in those bigger stories. Those days that I visited Joanne, I began to do just that. Joanne would get up in the morning and go to work. I would spend time writing. I took long walks along the high banks of the Mississippi River. Joanne would come back and we would talk more about the family. A lot of it wasn't easy. I had met my goal of not smoking for over a year, and yet after a day I was hooked again and stayed hooked for 15 months before finally quitting for good. One day I visited Joanne at work. One of her young patients, Danny Moser, loved video games. In order to keep him safe from infection, I put on a mask and gown before entering his room. We played in television baseball for nearly an hour. Talk about perspective. While I was trying to understand my place in life better, he was just holding on for dear life, trying to stay alive. The fact is, he, he didn't make it. And those times when I might want to feel sorry for myself, all I really need to do is remember Danny. The last night of the visit, Joanne and I had dinner with her dad. After the oldest brother, Peter, died, he became the family patriarch. I've always got a kick out of Uncle Broer. I've enjoyed being around him. I'd prepared some questions to ask. I somehow figured if I knew enough facts that things would fall into place and life would suddenly make sense. I remember standing in the parking lot of the Lowell Inn in Stillwater, Minnesota, reading from my carefully prepared notes. When was my dad hospitalized? What was the prognosis? When did it look the darkest? When was I christened? When did my dad come home for good? When did he go back to work? When was he finally out of the woods? And to every question, my uncle's answer was, I don't remember. It was raining lightly when Joanne and I drove back to her place. It was silent in the car except for the slow slapping of the windshield wipers. That night, I went to bed, devastated and despairing, but awoke early Sunday morning with a sense of peace. The calmness came in believing that though I might never know the facts, that on some important level, I could know the truth. Ernest Hemingway believed that he could tell when something was false. He had a descriptive way of talking about his knack for recognizing when something or someone was untrue. 
That ability informed his life and his work. That Sunday morning, I woke up trusting that I could know when something was true and identify when something had that almost imperceptible ring of truth. At times, I've had trouble trusting that gift. I've learned that it's not infallible. And I've discovered how often the truth hurts. But that morning, I simply believed. And as I got ready to go home, that was enough. I thought we'd go out in a great ball of fire shot or arrested, fooling with desire. I thought we'd be gone when the piper came around. For life, fill us up. And started slowing us down. Life continued to be fragile and raw. Keeping with allusions to gardens and Bible stories, I was now buoyed by the fact that I could finally access what for me might be described as the tree of life and, and so discover life-giving knowledge. Not long after I got home, I began to share what had happened during the summer and early autumn. McCoy was the first one I told. We went down by the lake at his house and leaned against the canoe upside down on a couple of sawhorses. The story flowed along with some laughter and a few tears. And in the telling, this story became more alive, in the sharing more real. The telling giving it a perspective, and that perspective aiding in the telling. What I was beginning to understand was that for so long that story had defined me. And as I stood there talking with my friend in the fading October light, I was beginning to define the story. And somewhere in the middle of this 25th of 49 campfires, one of those times in a life has gone from a journey outward and become a journey home. I am continually amazed at the alchemy of memory and discovery. I'm filled with an abiding sense of delight and joy and wonder and gratitude for a chance to use a lifetime of stories to search for the story of a lifetime and a lifetime of songs to create the soundtrack for such a journey. Oh, partner, dear soulmate, we've come a long way down fast lanes and dirt roads, crossed an ocean or two, shared adventure, danger, with friend, stranger, doing the best of what we thought we could do. Thanks for sharing 
one of those times in a life. At the next campfire, not through loving yet. Hope to see you then. <laughs>